The end is near. We come now to the last portion of 1 Thessalonians. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles. The end is near. Hear the word of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning with verse 12, to the end. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let us pray. O oh, our Father, we ask now that your word, which is inspired and true and sure, would be open, not just before our eyes and our ears, but before our minds and our hearts, our wills and our lives. May you transform us after Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I think you would agree with me after this series in 1 Thessalonians. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy have done a good job, haven't they? They've done an excellent work being carried along by the Holy Spirit. What began in grace now ends in grace. And that grace is the substance of your Christian life and also my own. It's the daily substance of Christian living. But there is a focus in these verses and we would make a mistake not to notice it and to press it home to conscience. The light shines, particularly in these verses, on congregational life. Specifically on our relationship as members of the congregation to church leadership. Here, we will see how to help your elders. Let me put that maybe more helpfully, you know, there is this saying, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And so we all recoil. Let me put it more pointedly, perhaps. Here, we will see how to love your elders. 
The first thing Paul tells us is to appreciate your elders. Verse 12 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Notice the elders are required by God and required by the Apostle Paul to labor among members of the congregation. This is not a board of directors. This is not an honorary uh, council. Uh, These are those who have been gifted by Christ and so called by Christ and so recognized by the congregation by putting on the spectacles of the word that give the qualifications that they have been gifted to help and aid and work among us. They're over us, not in the sense that they're better than us or more important than we are. They're over us in the Lord's service, in that vein, in that way, in that function. And notice that they have heavy lifting to do. It requires courage to be in this form of church leadership because it's one thing to campaign and kiss babies and have people throw confetti and and adore you because you're so wonderful and they like your platform and the words you say. But these kinds of elected officials in the church, they have a responsibility to do hard things, such as telling you when you're wrong and warning you when you're in the red zone. They are to tend your souls and love and care for you in truth, in substance, not just in emotion as our culture today seems to judge everything. Secondly, we're told that we should esteem them. Verse 13 says, And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. It's not that we should esteem them just a wee little bit. We should should esteem them a whole great amount. We should do so out of the motive of love and appreciation for their labor. We should think better of themselves, dare I say it, than they would ever think. We should think better of them than they would ever think of themselves. And we should do that because of their work. They are to be workers. They are not to be observers. They're not to sit back and say, hey, lift this and do that and, hey, do it faster than I told you. No, they are to be co-laborers with us. They are under shepherds, under Christ Jesus our Lord. And therefore that means they have a high and a holy standard to which to reach. And which they can never reach. Because they can never be exactly like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But they can try They can seek to approach. They can grow in grace. They can double down and resolve in their labor. And so the blessing of the Lord can come through them and even in spite of them, these good elders. Appreciate your elders. Second, the apostle tells us to assist your elders. True love appreciates and true love also rolls up its sleeve and and helps carry the load. Notice that verse 13 ends immediately after appreciating their and esteeming their work, be at peace among yourselves. 
And every single elder I've ever known in my life would agree 100% that the best thing the people in the congregation can do to make their load lighter and their work a joy is to be at peace and to love and care for one another. Oh my goodness, living in peace is a wonderful thing. Outwardly, they are to live at peace in the congregation. And so that means we are to live at peace with one another, not just uh, with the one sitting next to us, not with just those on our row or our pew, but with the whole of the congregation. As much as it is able for us so to be, we are to seek unity and shalom in heart and mind with them. And that admonition from the Apostle Paul doesn't kind of hang in midair. It's not a Christmas ornament that doesn't have a limb holding it up. What is the giver and the substance of peace in your life? Believer, where does the measure of peace that God has given you in the face of fears and wars and rumors of wars? Uh, Economic warnings of it's going to explode the stock market. You better get on board today and oh my goodness, it's going to crash and we're facing a new depression and the end of the world. You know, the Canadian prepper this last week predicted a nuclear explosion in the end of the universe as we know it at least eight or nine times. We are to live in peace, and we can only do that because of an inward reality. The required basis for peace is not optimism. It's not a Bavarian jovial character or personality. It's Union and communion with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one. And union and favor with Him, His blessing, His Spirit working with us and in us from the inside is the only thing that can truly give us lasting peace. You know, we can, we can twist our tail for a little bit and work up a cheery disposition. But Christian peace... Spiritual peace, in-season and out-of-season kind of peace only comes from God. Also, we should assist our elders by not just living in peace, but also living in busy town. Now, I'm making allusion to a number of childhood books that our children, I think, memorized. Maybe yours did, too. And there is busy town where everyone is very busy and you get to see animals doing different jobs. Verse 14 says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Oh, that sounds like lowly worm, doesn't it? Peace (laughs) and busy living to the glory of God. You see, we are to aid and help one another. And the things that are listed are things that we immediately say, well, I mean, those are the things elders should be doing. That's right. Things that elders do are not all exclusively elder functions. They also are congregational functions to a certain measure as well. Elders admonish, and they're not faithful if they, if they fail to do that, but members admonish one another too. Now look, I'm not, 
I'm not calling, and it would be unbiblical for me to be urging you to engage in that strange form of Presbyterian ritual called hazing in the hallway, where you step on somebody's toe by mistake, totally, totally by accident, and they lift up a fist and they say, you stepped on my toe, and if you don't repent, I'm going to bring you up on charges before the elders. And if you won't repent then, and they won't listen, then I'm taking it to the presbytery, and we're going to the standing judicial commission. No, that's not Christ-like character. That's not loving and helping your elders. That's making needless work and a fool of yourself. We don't do that. Rather, we lovingly, gently, wisely, carefully learn how to admonish one another. A do word in good season. A carefully, carefully thought word. Not a punch back kind of situation. This part of the universal Christian work flows from gifting. It keeps in mind our station in life. You know, the new young Christian doesn't go up to the older believer and rebuke them on a matter that they do not really have any understanding of or experience in. Insight, providence, all of these things are baked into how we love and care for one another as believers. You see, here we're given a set of tools by God for mutual spiritual care. And they must be selected from the bag and they must be applied very carefully. Did you know that every situation in your own life and in the life of your family and in the life of the congregation does not require a sledgehammer? A gentle tug or two will do sometimes. A simple and careful application of a turning of the screw or a loosening of it will aid and abet and relieve the soul and burden of another and you will assist your elders and the gospel will flourish in the church and community because you showed love in action as a fellow member and fellow servant of Christ. That means we bear with one another. We don't bite back. We don't retaliate. See that no one repays evil for evil in the busy town of the church. We seek to do good to all. We seek to aid and abet and encourage. And in verses 16 through 22, we hear about what it's like to live by the Spirit. Give thanks in all or rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This checklist, this Excel spreadsheet back in the first century, tells us a whole list of things that are on the spiritual to-do list. Now, you know, just the mentioning of a to-do list can make us break out in hives and nervousness. They rule our lives, don't we? Don't they? Uh, we, we have them on a physical sheet. And then we get tired of that, and so we add to that a 
an iPhone application. And the nice thing about those is you can keep the application closed and you're never reminded and you feel guiltless. And then you think, well, that's not working too well, so I'll open up a word processing file and keep a list there. I think right now in my life I have five to-do lists. And if I put them all together, the world could not contain all of the things that I have failed to do so far in the last few weeks. There is a spiritual to-do list by, set by priority of the Apostle Paul. Rejoice always. Now, brothers and sisters, some of you live and breathe. You work and dream rejoicingly. But we can see it by the look on your face, the spring in your step. The Lord has blessed you with this abundant spiritual blessing. And it's intended not just for your life, but to spread and, and to distribute among us and encourage us in the same vein. There are others of us that are old Scottish grumpy Presbyterians. And we need a little encouragement from you to help and aid and lift our day and our service to the Lord. Another priority we're given here is pray without ceasing. Some, their hearts naturally resort to the Lord upon every opportunity. My goodness, you know church members that you can't be around for two minutes until they're sharing a prayer request or the fulfillment of one or they're even audibly thanking God or asking God for something good according to His Word. But pray without ceasing is something that all the brethren constantly needed, need to be reminded of. And so it's a priority on all of our spiritual to-do lists to share and encourage and practice ourselves. And we should always give thanks. And notice that there's a very important emphasis placed by the rationale given this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That means that that principle is deep underneath holding up that spiritual do list. Bore down to that level and you reach the meta reality of God's working and God's will and purpose at that deep level in your lives. Now there's also a spiritual do not list embedded or implied here as well. Do not quench the spirit. Do not make the spirit recoil in horror because of sin in which you wallow and, and rejoice instead of rejoicing in God. Do not despise prophecies is a very important principle. Because you see, at the time 1 Thessalonians was being written, the whole of the New Testament, the completion of the canon had not yet come. And so they needed the ongoing ministry of New Testament prophecy to help them through the difficult and full of persecution time in which they lived. The principle for us today would be the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation, it's so important in your Christian life. Make sure you do not despise it or turn your back on it. Keep it open and keep seeking after His light. Do not fail to test everything by that word. Do not fail to hold to the good. 
You know, there are some Presbyterians who wear a special hat. They are the doctrinal police. They are the righteousness measurers. And they walk around and measure everything someone says. Uh, They are in control of making the decision about whether it's thumbs up for you or thumbs down. There is a temptation that sometimes comes even in our circles in this direction. And we must be careful and cautious to remember the spiritual do not, li- do not do list. Yes, we test everything by the word of God, but we also hold to the good and we encourage that in others positively and proactively. And we do so by modeling abstaining from evil. We are not to be mean. We are not to be people whose middle name is critical. We are to be those who love the Lord and love his people. And you know, sometimes we don't feel very loving, but we are to be loving still nonetheless by his word, by his spirit, by his grace. So here we're told by the Apostle Paul to assist our elders by living by the spirit It's an aid to them and makes their work easier and lighter and more of a joy. Thirdly, we're told to associate with our elders. Now, maybe that's a strange word. You know, I'm not big on alliterated sermon topics, but when I can, uh, titles, but when I can think of one, it's three A's tonight. We're going to associate with our elders in our interpretation of this passage. Verse 23 gives us a beautiful benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Here are beautiful words that almost need to be embroidered and hung up on our wall. They need to be repeated frequently in the service, perhaps as a benediction in worship. Oh, it would be good for us to associate all of us together around this benediction under its banner that we might all together partake of the blessings of God in the fellowship of the congregation. God himself is the fount of all peace. God himself is the fount of all that we need. God is the author of peace and you and I know in our bones we need it and only he can supply How does he do it? Well, he does it by sanctifying all of us completely in the end. God works from the inside out. He progressively changes. He progressively transforms. He changes and transforms our mind, our affections, our wills, even our bodies. Eventually, we'll be crafted into what they were always intended to be. God can do things to us and in us that we can't do in our own flesh. And we are called by Him to cooperate with Him in His work. We are to not oppose Him, but we are to pull and we are to labor in the direction of our Christian duty so that rather than quenching the Spirit, we will be one who encourages obedience to the Spirit with another. What does such sanctification do for us? 
It prepares us to meet the Lord. It prepares us to see Him. Now perhaps that will first happen at His second coming. Perhaps that's when we will first see Him. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. We would love to see you and to live forevermore, having been relieved of both the first death and the second, as only you can do. But for many more of us, perhaps our first meeting will be in the first death when we breathe our last and when the Lord calls us home and we will open our eyes and we will see him face to face and what glory and joy and peace established in our lives never to be shaken or even tempted away again. Oh, God is good and he indeed will sanctify us to the uttermost in Christ Jesus. Are you ready? Are you trying to get ready? You tried to get ready to come to church tonight. Bet it took you a little longer than you thought. It seems to always be that way, doesn't it? Something's out of place. Something's lost. Got one shoe and forgot the other. Are you getting ready? The Lord wants you to stop quenching the Spirit and to get instead in step with the Spirit, in line with the Spirit, pulling in His direction all to His glory. And he tells us in verse 24, He who calls you is faithful. Surely he will do it. You know, we're small and finite and, and sin still clings to us like barnacles, doesn't it? We know in our own strength we can't do it. But he can. God can do it. He is faithful. He will never break his covenant promises to you. He who called you is the one who also will sanctify you. And you can count on that, Paul says. So in conclusion, wrapping, wrapping the loose ends together, we read in verse 25, brothers, pray for us. And we're reminded that that's a means of grace. It's one of the low-hanging fruits in the Christian life. He wants us to pray because he's appointed that as a way that as a way to help and bless and strengthen to grow us in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to conform us to his image to better prepare us for heaven that's why he wants us to pray it's not so that we can extort things out of him or he owes us because we prayed in a more holy voice or a more holy length of time or a more holy position than other people. No, no, no. It's really important, Paul says. The Apostle Paul. You know, the twelve, they got like the Jews in Palestine. Paul had the burden of all the rest of the world as the Apostle to the Gentiles. And he says, it's really important, brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, for you to pray for me and pray for my ministry. You know, there's a temptation that we sometimes face, that Reformed believers especially face, that we don't care enough to pray because we rationalize prayer away. Sometimes people rationalize it away on a theological basis. They say, well, 
Let me rest on the laurels of the divine decree. It's all been decreed anyway. God is the one who has appointed everything in his eternal degree from even before time began. Everything will work out all right in the end and so I don't need to pray. And what you don't realize is that your lack of obedience and faithfulness was a part of the decree as well. But you are the one who freely chose it. God didn't force you. You were what you are. And that's a lazy Christian who won't even lift their hand up and pray to God. Oh, here is the command to aid in the apostles' ministry. Do you see that it mattered for the church in Thessalonica? They had to do this. Lives hung in the balance as far as they could see in the realm of creation. The fact that the Creator decreed something or did not decree it was frankly, as Calvin said, none of their business. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. We can take comfort in His decree, and rightly so, but we can't use it to overthrow His commands and our Christian duties that we face. Praying members of a church, even if they're shut in, praying members of the church are the powerhouse of a local church. Never forget it. Then there's this very unpresbyterian thing, greet the brothers with a holy kiss. Look, this is a sign of acceptance. It's a sign of fellowship in the day. We may think of welcoming new members, but Paul is not talking about here about the meeting. Greet team. It's good to have one of those. Hope you're on it. Might volunteer, you know, help the elders. This is referring to the way you treat other believers. Do you show a sign of love and familial acceptance and fellowship in the family of God? We have some brothers here who do that with a handshake stronger and more potent than any other I've, I've felt. And I know what they're doing. They're giving glory to God. Praise the Lord. We need to remember the apostle commands this of all, of all, for all in the church. Now look, a little advice. Don't get too handy. Don't get too lippy. If you're going to give a hug instead of a kiss, do a sidearm hug. Maybe ask permission first. If they're young, give them a high five. <laughs> but show Christian love and care and interest one in another. You can figure out how to do that. This is sanctified common sense. It flows down the aisle here. You can do it. Verse 27 says, read all of this letter to the church. It's an inspired text. That means it's special. Uh, this is not uh, uh, the tales of Gilgamesh. This is the very word of God. It is to be read and it is to be taken to heart. It's inerrant and true. We stand upon the scriptures. We need to hear it and know it, each one of us. And then we get a second cherry on top. We get a second benediction. And it's not long and detailed, it's short and pithy. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We hear the apostle pronounce over us. Did you hear that? The Lord Jesus 
Christ. Those aren't just three religious words. That's Jesus of Nazareth. The son of David. Born of a woman, born under the law at the appointed time. Who is the Messiah, the Christ. But he's also the divine Messiah. He is God in the flesh. He's the son of his heavenly father. And so, he is the one who has grace and is filled beyond measure with the Holy Spirit to supply your needs, believer. He is able to dispense what you lack. He gives faith. He gives love. He gives truth. He gives strength. He gives you all that you need for Christian living. And we all need His grace. Now, I think this clock is right and I've got seven minutes left. And that means that I can be a hero by ending now. But if I did that, I would be short shrifting you. I have three more pages of notes. And I will not subject you to that. You know, today is the happiest day in all the year, isn't it? Thank God for falling back. May God help us when the payback comes, when we spring forward. But if I were to stop here, I would short sheet you. And so I want to say a few more things. We need to be careful in handling this, handling this text. You see, we shouldn't just moralize about this ending. There's a giant chasm between the church in Thessalonica and this text and where we are today. And we need to be thoughtful and careful as we handle it. Just a few things that separate us from them. Language. There's a difference of language, Greek versus English. 2,000 years of time. They're not in Texas, and we know what that means. There's a socioeconomic difference. To be blunt, they were dirt poor of the worst and lowest form compared to what we enjoy today. They had family connections, though. And we, we have breathed in the culture around us, and we are tempted to hyper-individualism in the West. They were ancient. We are modern. They were into Greek philosophy. We don't even know how to spell those words. They knew mythology. And we've seen some reference to them in movies, but we're not quite sure how to pronounce their names. We, however, have been pickled in Western secularism. And we instinctively know not to believe in gods or any god. At least that's what Satan whispers in our ears. But those factors alone are not enough to help us properly apply this text. There are other factors. This text was written during the apostolic era. And so it's from the voice of an authoritative apostle. We today are in the modern church age. You know, every... Every church has always thought in their own day they were in the modern church age. <laughs> it's not much to brag about. But we're in the modern church age. And there are some differences between those two situations. Their religious background was Jewish and God-fearing. Ours is evangelical, God help us, and reformed, praise the Lord. Some of us are even Republicans. That's a joke. It's meant to relieve tension with so many details. 
There's a difference in church status. They were filled with new converts who knew just a wee bit about the Christian faith and they needed to learn so much more and they faced the temptation of Judaizers and other heretics coming to pollute their mind in worship. Today we enjoy the status of mature believers who are surrounded by many other Reformed and Evangelical churches which can aid us when we find ourselves in difficulty. And there's a polity dynamic difference. They were the only church in town. There was no other place to go, no other place to turn. We today, I don't know, I, I don't know the count, but there must be how many thousand churches in Katy or in the, in the west end of, of the Houston metropolitan area? How do these admonitions to the Thessalonians apply in principle to us? Now, I'm going to draw a few applications. I have three minutes left. And I'm not going to make reference to anything in this church or to any other church that you might remotely be from of which I know. So there's no PCA Presbyterian thing of here which I'm speaking. I am, however, going to draw applications based upon a little experience. I do not have the most experience in the room, but I've had 50 years of conscious church life. You know, when you're young, you're kind of unconscious. You're not even... You don't even realize what's going on around you. But at a certain age, you wake up to the life of the church. And I've been a member of the church for about 50 years. And I've been ordained for 30 of those years. So here, and way like Paul admonishes them to do in the balance of Scripture. First, elders come in two kinds. Teaching and ruling elders. And they come in the form of those gifted by Christ and called by Christ, and then sometimes there are others who are only called by the congregation. And that's a problem. The vast majority, however, according to my experience, are dedicated, sacrificial straight shooters who carry a heavy load in the church. They deserve your respect, your esteem, your assistance, and your association. The good that comes from church leadership that we experience in our time and place is worth its weight in gold for the kingdom. And the good is not worth blowing up the house over the inevitable fallen blemishes. This is my point. You do know we're not in heaven yet. Just like in your families, there are going to be some dropped eggs now and again, right? Spilt milk, it's going to happen. There might even be a wonderful Sunday roast that gets burned. That happens. The reason there's a plurality of elders is because no one elder knows everything or has all the gifts they need to care and to love and to watch over the congregation. Uh, there's this amazing New Zealand singing group. It's only because of the way they pronounce words. I, I just love it. I can't imitate it. That, that's what makes it so fun for me. They're called the Beths, and they say, they sing a song, Some Things Are Best Left to Rot. And you know, there are some forms of error in the church that the best way to deal with them is to not pick at them and not cause, cause trouble about them, but rather to take two steps back, look a little embarrassed, and let them decay to nothing. Oh, lesser sins are best rebuked with a disappointed look. Greater sins are another matter, and you know we have sessions in presbyteries for that. But don't make a mountain out of a molehill. And please, 
don't use the principle, which is biblical, of antithesis to burn down every good Christian institution in the world. That's called Maoism. That's not called Christianity. Don't blow up the house needlessly. Secondly, have realistic expectations. Remember the World Series recently? Most balls were fielded fairly well. Yes, there are some dropped balls in every baseball game. Unless it's the Chicago Cubs, and then that's a separate issue. Paul is not advocating us walking off the field for a poor pitch or a glove error. Long is the time. And systematically consistent are the circumstances which demand that we walk away from the game. I could say more, but I won't. We must be fully engaged. And we must remember that everybody can't be in charge of everything they would like to be. They can't even know everything they would like to know. I remember the day working in a seminary when I ran up on that reality I'd never thought of called employment law. And people had privacy rights. And you couldn't just put all the laundry out to dry in everybody's view. No, no, no. You must have respect for officers who deal with difficult and hard things. Instead, you need to try a strategy, which I commend to you in your personal life, but also in your church life. It's the thing that you wish your husband would do more of. It's that amazing marriage elixir called talking to you. If you have a question, if you have a concern, then talk to your elders. And when you do that, they should and will encourage you that that's the right thing to do. Praise be to the Lord. Don't let things sit or fester. You go to your elders. They maybe can help lift a scandal off your back that is weighing you down. And again, you'll feel the cool breezes of fellowship together. Don't be a warrior child. That's another principle. You know, there was a great article written about Machen's warrior children, and I love Jay Gresham Machen, and I thank God he fought against liberalism, and I'm right there with him. But you know, there is a line of criticism that has been made about later generations of those who flowed from him, that they decided to pick fights not over liberalism, but about anything that they disagreed on. We do well not to cultivate such an attitude. Show the mind and heart of Christ in your love together. That's a general principle of this section in Scripture. And finally, keep your eye upon Jesus. Pray for one another. Show your Christian heart to others in the church. Stand on Scripture, not the values of the world, and look to Jesus for the grace and strength you need. Amen. Let's pray.